All right. Welcome to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton. And on this midweek mini episode, we're going to dive into part two of the You Ask, I Answer series. So these are uh, Q&A. These are some questions that have come in through Instagram. Um, and if you are wanting to ask me questions, you can always hit me up, DM me on Instagram. It's at Man Talks. Uh, or, you know, every once in a while, usually every week, I will uh, pop up a, a little a little question of, you know, what uh, what questions you have for me. And then I'll try and answer some of them on Instagram and dive into some of the topics that you have and then save some of the juicy ones for the podcast. So I'm going to dive into a few questions. So here we go. How do I set boundaries with my partner when they get reactive? So I've been with my wife for over a decade. And one of the challenges that I've realized over the years is that A, I don't have very good boundaries. And B, when I try and set boundaries or talk about boundaries with my wife, she gets very reactive. Please help. All right. So first and foremost, one of the things that I want to say straight out the gates is in every relationship, you should have a code of conflict. Okay, a code of conflict. And what I mean by this is you should have rules of engagement for how you and your partner agree to engage in conflict. Many of us have grown up in different environments, different conflict environments in our family system. So some of us grew up with families where conflict was like a love language, right? It was just, you know, family was constantly barbing, joking around, poking fun at one another, trying to get each other to be reactive. And, uh, you know, there's just a lot of conflict within the family system. Uh, lots of arguments, lots of drama, right? Uh, for others, we've grown up where there's no conflict, where conflict was completely avoided in the family system. So we've never really seen it. We don't know how to engage in it. It feels foreign for us and we feel ill-equipped to deal with conflict. So when it comes up, we get reactive or we lose our cool or we take it personally. And then for others, conflict was harmful, right? We grew up in environments where conflict was abuse and, you know, trauma. And so when that conflict comes up in our relationship, any number of things can happen. We can shut down, we can run away, we can get hyper-reactive ourselves, we can repeat the patterns of our past. And so having this code of conflict with your partner is incredibly important. And you can just, you know, sit down with your partner and say, you know, I've noticed that we don't really do conflict very well sometimes, or I, I feel like we could do conflict more effectively. So let's talk about some of the rules of engagement. How do we want to actually engage in conflict? And these are an ideal that you're going to work towards, right? You're not going to create the code of conflict. And then next time conflict comes up, you're going to get it perfectly. I mean, if you do, great, congratulations. But for most people, this is something that they are actively working towards. Uh, so how do we set boundaries with somebody who gets reactive? Well, if we have that code of conflict in place, we can discuss outside of the boundary setting. What about that boundary is causing reactivity for our partner? Is it our delivery system, right? Are we delivering that boundary in a passive aggressive way? Are we delivering that boundary in a way that is hostile or, you know, victimy or shaming, right? Maybe it's our delivery mechanism or... Is that boundary hard for our partner to hear? And do they get reactive because it feels like they're failing? So inquiring about what the reactivity actually is, you know, like what is what does that person experience when we set that boundary with them? Having some understanding of, of what's causing that reactivity is going to be very important. Next is having common ground about what's unacceptable or crossing a line. So when we do set a boundary, 
uh, and our partners getting very reactive. Again, having that code of conflict of here's what's unacceptable, right? If I set a boundary with you and you start yelling and swearing at me, it's un unacceptable. You're, cro you're crossing a line and we just need to pause, right? That's cause for a pause. Next is we need to let go of the personalization, right? When our partner is reactive to a boundary that we're setting, it's usually indicative that it's bringing up something within them, right? We've touched on something that is causing them to feel shame or pain or like a failure, uh, many different things that can come up, right? So again, if we've delivered the boundary in a healthy, grounded way, where we're not attacking or shaming or guilting or whatever the case may be, and we've actually delivered it in a very grounded way, then our partner's reactivity generally isn't about us, it's about them. And so we need to adopt the perspective that when they're getting reactive, something is coming up for them. Now, this doesn't mean that we should sit in a place of taking abuse or you know, taking their rage or their anger. That's not it at all. It simply means that something within them has been triggered and there is cause for curiosity, right? How do we engage with them in curiosity? Again, outside of the boundary setting, when they've cooled down a little bit to be able to say, hey, why did you get so reactive when I set that boundary with you? And, and then explore that with them and get, get curious about what their personal experience was. Because they're probably going to say like, well, you did this and you did that. And just say, no, no, you know, pause back up. What happened for you? What about my boundary? Like maybe my delivery method wasn't great. I can, I can own that. But what about my boundary felt challenging for you? Do you feel like you're failing in some way? Do you feel like you've let me down in some way? Like what's actually coming up for you? And then reconnect to your own grounding. So try and stay grounded in this space uh, and hold true to the fact that your boundary is important. All right. How do I know? <laughs> this is, I get this question all the time uh, and I have waited to dive into this one. How do I know if I found the one. Uh, so I've been dating for uh, a few years and have not been able to find the one. Uh, I found a lot of great women, but I'm not really too sure how to know if I've ever found the one. Okay. So if you've ever heard of the term one-itis, uh, great. I'm going to talk about it here. If you haven't, one-itis is this idea that out of 7.4 billion people, there is one per only one person that is meant to love you. Uh, I think that this idea and concept is complete garbage. I do not believe in the idea of the one, right? Um, I think it is birthed out of this culture of specialness and uniqueness that we live in, in Western culture, this idea that we need to be so special, we need to be the one for somebody. Uh, so we want to kind of be chosen and picked. Uh, it's also this idea that there is somebody out there that is going to love us better than everyone else. Now, surely there are people who are going to love you better than others. Yes, unequivocally, this is true. But is one person going to love you better than anyone else in the entire world could? I doubt it. This usually comes out of a few things from what I've seen. One, it generally comes out of insecurity. And two, it generally comes out of us not being able to love parts of ourself. And what happens within our psyche, within our ego, is that the ego starts to concoct this vision or this version of someone that will love 
all of us, that there's this one magical person out there that's going to be able to love all the parts of us that we can't accept, that we do accept, that we don't accept, that we can't come into contact with. And that person is going to love all of our parts. And there's only one person that can do it. And generally, this is a mechanism of keeping us from witnessing, accepting, and loving the aspects of ourselves that we reject. So there is shadow work to be done in here, my friends. So the, the idea that there is this one person out there is a very sort of like Disney, you know, manu manufactured hallmark version of love. Um, there are many people that can love you. And there are many people that can do a, a brilliant job at loving you. But the idea that there is one sole human being that is going to complete you, again, notice that word, complete you, uh, or make you whole or fill you up, comes out of a space of scarcity. It comes out of a space of lack. And it generally comes out of a space of us not having fully accepted parts of ourselves that we feel are challenging to love. So I see a lot of people that have grown up maybe in, in hostile homes, um, people that, um, you know, have, have maybe seen parents who were deeply in love and they want to replicate or emulate that love. And they've adopted this idea that there is only one person because, you know, in, in the world of 50% divorce rates, uh, maybe your parents were the ones that really found wonderful, deep, real love that lasted, you know, decades. And that's wonderful. Uh, and maybe they perpetuated this idea that there was only one person, right? Uh, that there is like this, this person that's going to come in and love all these different parts of you. So how do you know if you found the one? Well, first off, in order to find a one, in order to find the one, in order to find somebody that you want to spend a few years with, you have to be the one. You have to be able to love yourself in the ways in which you would ideally like somebody else to love you. Now, this doesn't mean that we have to be perfect at that because, you know, that's a lifelong endeavor. But as my friend Adam Roa says, you are who you've been looking for. You are who you've been looking for. So in order to find real depth of love, we first have to meet the parts of ourselves that we feel are unsavory, that we feel are unlovable, that we feel are maybe hard to be with. And we have to start to work with those parts and embrace those parts so that when we do find someone that we love, we are not outsourcing our okayness, our integration, our full acceptance onto that person. Because that's what a lot of people do when they hold on to this concept of this one-itis. And it puts, it puts all of this pressure on the other person. It's a very enmeshed version of love. It's like, I got to find this one person who's going to love me, who's going to accept me, who's going to you know, do all the things that I want to do. It's a very egocentric, adolescent version of love. It lacks maturation. It lacks a certain depth. Um, and, and it is a very sort of adolescent version of love. And I think we've all gone through that space, you know, in our teenage years or our early 20s where we're just like, oh, I just want to find the one person that I can spend my life with and travel with and, you know, love and be loved by and be carefree, right? We want to be carefree. And this version of one-itis is very carefree oriented. So we have to start to do the work to be the one to accept these parts of ourselves. And then we will invite in people who are able to love us deeper. So let go of the idea that there's just one person. Let go of that idea, right? It's 
it's like enlightenment through love. That's that's another way that I that I view this. There's this I if you've ever heard of the word satori or the concept satori, it's it's a it's a moment of sudden enlightenment, right? A sudden awakening that we can have. But I think a lot of people are chasing this sort of full enlightenment, full acceptance, full understanding through another person, right? So it's a means of saying I will be complete when I find that person, when I find the one. And for many people, holding on to this ideal and holding on to this concept can actually block them from the healing that they that is possible in their dating life, right? Dating can be incredibly healing and generative and eye-opening uh, when we are not so uh, attached, so obsessed with this idea of, is this person the one? Because then we're constantly trying to poke holes in who they are. We're, we're constantly, we don't see who they are. We, we objectify them and, and overlay who we think we want in our life and how we think we want to be loved. And it puts a tremendous amount of pressure on them, on the relationship, uh, and takes a lot of the pressure off of us. So stop looking for the one and you might find someone all right, long distance advice. I'm, I'm sure I'm going to get some some uh, messages about that one. <laughs> that might not be super popular advice, but that's okay. Uh, long distance advice. So my wife and I have been married for a few years. Uh, we are currently separated because of COVID. Any advice would be helpful on maintaining a long distance relationship. So here's what I would say. Uh, you know, statistically, 10% of relationships, I think it's 10% of marriages, I believe, begin in long distance. Uh, my wife and I started in a long distance relationship. We were a little unique in the sense that I wouldn't normally advocate for, in the past, I wouldn't have, have advocated for long distance relationships. I just, you know, they're very challenging for a lot of people. Um, I don't generally think that they are conducive for the type of connectivity, communication, intimacy that we're ultimately seeking. Um, but in the short term, you know, we, we can work with them. Right, we can work with them. So we started off long distance, um, but we were fortunate where I could go back and forth every two weeks. Um, so it was it was basically we had an agreement, and this was part of our uh, conversation when we first started dating. Was you know if we're going to do long distance, I you know I basically said I'm I'm not super interested in doing this. You know I see you maybe once every two months. Um, that doesn't feel like much of a relationship for me. And so we had to get very clear on what we were looking for out of a relationship very quickly. So there are some basic things that you can do if you are in a long-term or long-distance relationship. Number one is you want to have very clear communication, very clear expectations of your communication. And what that means is what are your daily or weekly requirements? For some people, they're going to want, you know, the text message before bed or waking up. They're going to want to check in on a on a daily or every other day basis to just sort of see like how you doing. They're going to want to share resources and stay connected, um, you know, through different mediums. You might be the person that wants to FaceTime every other day or every three days, right? And so maintaining a bit of like a routine or a ritual of connection uh, is going to be incredibly important in long term long distance relationships, but also maintaining. Uh, a a connection to how frequently you see one another. So that's going to depend on a whole slew of things, right? How far apart you are, 
your jobs, how, you know, whether you have kids or not, there's a whole bunch of pieces in there. So yes, you can make long distance work. We certainly did. But I think the more, if you have the flexibility to see one another more frequently, it makes it a little bit easier, right? Like we never went more than sort of like 20 days, 15, 20 days without seeing one another. So it kind of just felt like, you know, I was on constant work trips, which I was, I was traveling quite a bit when we first started seeing one another. So you want to get clear on, on those pieces. The other piece is you want to make sure that you have shared experiences. Now, this might be that, uh, you know, you plan a date night once a week when you're apart and you commit to that uh, and you commit to doing something that you both love, right? If you're a board game person, uh, you could play chess, you know, virtually or uh, you can play you can play some sort of game together. You can watch a movie together, right? You can do these types of things to maintain that connection because otherwise there's not much of a connection there if you're not maintaining these shared experiences. And lastly, you want to maintain self-respect, right? You do not want to abandon yourself. Long distance relationships can can really uh, attract people that love and accentuate these chaser and chaste dynamics. So if you are somebody that likes to chase women or you're somebody that likes to chase men and you find yourself getting into long distance relationships, it's it's sometimes because it's accentuating and amplifying this chaser and chaste dynamic that you love to find yourself in, right? Because it's for some of us, it's like the ultimate version of that. Uh, and I really had to question that at the beginning of my relationship with Vienna. I was like, am I in a chaser and chase dynamic here? Like, am I pursuing something that is sort of out of reach because this person is 3,000 miles away? Or is this a genuine connection? And so, you know, there's a lot of questions that I would encourage you to embark on. Um, but if you've started off in a relationship and it's become long distance, that presents a whole different subset of challenges. So you're going to want to, again, like I said, you don't want to have clear uh, communication, lay out very clear expectations on how on the frequency of connection and conversation. And you're going to want to maintain um, those shared experiences, whether it's a date, you know, whether you both go out on a hike uh, and, and you, you know, FaceTime for a little bit and you have a shared experience or you do a board game, you do a movie night or you do a date night or something like that. And then lastly, you're going to want to maintain uh, thoughtfulness. And this can look like a number of ways, right? Sending uh, flowers or sending a meal. I remember at one point uh, I was in Vancouver and Vienna got sick and I had um, I had some chocolate sent to her, sent to her place. And it's just the, these little small things, right? Like she received two chocolate bars. I mean, it wasn't like a big, <laughs> it wasn't a big chocolate package. It was like two chocolate bars, but it was a very small gesture that she was like, oh, I feel um, tended to, even though you're not here, I feel taken care of. And then another time uh, I sent her soup, right? Because again, she was not feeling so well. And so it's these little things that we can do to take care of our partner, even when we're not there. So you want to find ways um, to connect, to engage, to have shared experiences and to tend to our partner, even when we're not there. So thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope that some of these questions resonated with you. Um, I would encourage you to share this episode with one or two people that you know could use uh, maybe one or all of these questions, you know, would love to hear the answers to these. And uh, don't forget to send me off your questions. I'd love to hear them. I would love to hear what you, what you want me to dive into. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off.